0: Imagine that God came to you in the midst of crisis and promised you that everything would be okay. This would be an incredible promise, and God made this kind of promise to a church in the first century. This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you get close to the biblical Jesus. Our study today takes us to Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, and the Apostle John's letter to the Church of Philadelphia. Our study leader, Dave Wordson, uses the imminence of a Texas twister to illustrate the kind of crisis facing this little church, and the gigantic promise God gave to them. Dave you got this massive body of, of really warm air with all that energy and that cold air that's coming in and suddenly it all starts to mix together and we start to get what we call tornado watches and then it gets accelerated and they start talking about tornado warnings. In fact, when I go back up to New York State where I live, man, they, they think that we all live in bomb shelters half a the year. They're, they just constantly feel like these guys are under the constant threat of tornadoes. And we know that it's really not like that. And, you know, most of us don't really worry about that that much. But how many of you have ever spent some time underneath some mattresses and waiting it out? You know, some of you probably have done that. Especially when they make that ominous thing called a warning. That someone's saying, man, there's a tornado that touches the ground. I want you to imagine... ...that you're in one of those tornado alerts. It's a tornado warning, not a watch. It's a warning, which means that up in Arlington... ...they have sighted a massive... ...I mean, this is a Wichita Falls caliber tornado. It's barreling right down 360. It's about three miles wide... 300 mile an hour winds, and man, it's barreling down on Midlothian, and you're sitting in your bathtub in the middle of your house, which is the safest place for me to get, with mattresses over your head. How many of you, if you could find a meteorologist that would promise you, I promise you, that you will be kept From the time of the tornado, how many of you would give a lot of money if you could find a meteorologist that could absolutely promise you that if that big old tornado is barreling towards Midlothian, he could guarantee you, I promise you, you'll be kept from the hour of that tornado. How many of you would think that would be a pretty good deal, right? Well, you'll understand the entire book of Revelation if you'll feel the ominous feeling that you get when we're under a tornado warning. And when the tornado was barreling towards us. That's what the entire book of Revelation is about. As we look at world history, you can begin with the time of the Assyrians trying to defeat the Jewish people way back in about 800 years before Christ. And then you have the Babylonians and you come right up marching through world history. In John's day, as you open up the book of Revelation, John the Apostle is under this massive tornado warning called the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is trying to grab this little group of believers in Jesus by the throat. ...and trying just to to suffocate them... ...and to destroy their faith. Nobody in 95 AD would have ever dreamt... ...that we would be sitting in North America... ...that we'd be sitting in Texas... ...that we would be worshipping Jesus... ...that we would believe in him. Because he was just viewed in the first century... ...as being kind of an eccentric Galilean... ...that was part of the Jewish religion... ...and it was kind of an offshoot... ...and from a human standpoint... It was resisting the mighty tidal wave, this mighty tornado called Roman dominance. And that's what Revelation's about, because as we look at history today, we're still under the warning. And something I want you to understand about world history is that there's always going to be a tornado watch, as far as history is concerned, there's always going to be the tremendous swirling clouds. In fact, if you stop and think about it, we go through a little time of peace and then suddenly all of hell breaks loose again and we're under this tremendous swirling storm. That's what the Bible says is going to happen and it's going to accelerate. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what Revelation is about. But today I've got really good news for you. It's the best news in the world. In fact, this news that I'm going to share with you could take place before we're finished. Like some of you, ma'am, are wrestling with diseases that we've been praying for for years for the Lord to heal you. But because for some reason the Lord is testing and trying and maturing you and you haven't gotten over that. But before this day is over, you might have a new body that's totally disease-free. Disease-free forever. Age-free. Like probably all of you have noticed, you know, Dave is getting up there. You start wrestling with that. Well, I got news for you. Before we're finished today, before we're finished today, I might have a new body. That'll never age forever, never, never. Doesn't that sound pretty good? Some of you'll have hair again, and <laughs> <clears throat> some of you'll be able to stand up straight again. It's going to be a miracle. It's going to be incredible what happens. Because that's what Revelation chapter 3, the exalted risen Christ, shared with the Philadelphian believers. And what we've learned is that these seven churches represent different kinds of churches that are going to be existing all through church history which is a period that started with the gift of the Spirit of God at Pentecost when the, when the body of Christ was baptized with the precious third person of the Trinity. And that Holy Spirit is dwelling in our hearts today, and that church age will end when that Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart is taken out of the world in his present intimate form of working among believers in their hearts, and that's what's going to trigger this massive onslaught of evil. We want to talk about the great promise today, called the rapture. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter three, verse ten. We look at Revelation chapter three, ten. Jesus makes an incredible promise to this group of believers. He says this: "Since you have kept my command, since you have kept my, and I could translate it, since you have kept my gospel of the gospel of my endurance, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world." This gigantic tornado that's going to come into history is going to come upon the whole world. It's going to be an incredible time of testing. And Jesus is making a promise to these Philadelphian believers that they will be kept from that hour of trial. Which is going to test all those that dwell upon the earth. Then Jesus promises that he is going to come imminently. He could come at any second. And therefore he says, because I'm going to come at any minute... His message to the Philadelphian church is hold on to what you have in me would be the idea. Hold on to what you've received in Christ. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown, which would be your exaltation into the eternal kingdom. Him who overcomes or him who is the victor. We'll talk about who the victor is. Him who is the victor, the one who is victorious. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, which is the way the book of Revelation is going to close. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's talk first of all about this gigantic tornado. Jesus refers to it as the hour of testing which is going to come upon the entire world which is imminently beginning to blow. John the Apostle in 1 John will say, and the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. But John looks forward to a time. He's looking as a prophet, and he sees a very distinctive time, a time in the future. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, and let's look at what Daniel predicted about this coming hour of tremendous conflict. Because you're entering a time period where some of the modern day prophets are going to tell us, oh, we're going to get the European common market together. We'll get the United States economic engine together. We're going to get all this stuff going. We're going to meet at the United Nations and we're going to have peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Watch out whenever you hear that kind of talk. Whenever you hear human beings uniting together saying if we meet in enclave, if we meet in council, we can solve the problems of planet earth and everything will be fine, watch out. Because I can show you down through history whenever human beings have eliminated their dependence upon the living God, whenever they have pridefully felt we don't need that divine creator dimension. We don't need his promises. We can deal with life now, the way it is. Whenever you hear people talk like that, watch out. Because Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that there's going to come a very unique time. That's very close to Daniel. Look what it says. Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince. Now, Michael is the, one of the archangels of God. One of the leading warrior angels. And he is distinctively the angel that fights for the nation of Israel. All the way through the book of Daniel. I'm not just making that up, but you can read the book of Daniel yourself. And you're going to find out that Michael, throughout scripture, is the defender of God's physical people, the physical sons and daughters of Abraham, the Jewish people. The question that Daniel raised earlier, before we come to chapter 12, Daniel raised the issue, what's going to happen to my people? Daniel is very concerned about that. He is now in his 80s. And he's sitting in Babylon, which was a gigantic empire that had tried to strangle the nation of Israel and snuff out the testimony to the true God. Now you need to feel that. Daniel's a man that saw that the temple that Yahweh had commanded to be built, that he had blessed, that his Shekinah glory had come down upon that temple when King Solomon completed it. Daniel had actually seen That glory depart, Ezekiel the prophet told him about that glory departing from the temple... ...and then the the Babylonians came down and just literally leveled that temple. Now what would you think about the plan of God, the work of God in a world like that? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Yahweh, religion is dead. Forget about God. What I want to understand when you go away to university when you go out into the business world, when you travel, you're going to be confronted with different viewpoints, different ways of thought. And you're going to be tempted to think, well, man, you know, this is so brand new and and no one's ever faced these kind of thoughts before. That's not true at all. From the beginning of time, there's been wrestling with who's going to be the true God. Who really reigns over planet Earth? Who really can keep his promises? How do you really know about life after death? And this book records this gigantic struggle And it's a very tough struggle because sometimes it looks as if the true God has blown it. Sometimes it looks as if the the message of the true God has fallen in disgrace. Daniel was a man who lived in a time like that. The holy dwelling of God was leveled. And he lived his whole life in exile. And now he's raising the issue. God, are you going to have a future for your people? Are my Jewish people going to just be amalgamated into the nations? Or are they just going to become part of, of this great you know, sea of, of different nations and be lost forever? What's going to happen to my people? And the book of Daniel is God's response to Daniel saying... ...this is what's going to happen to your brothers and sisters. In fact, God gives him a lot more than he asked for. He shares the history of Daniel's people... ...from Nebuchadnezzar's time all the way to a future... ...that's still future to us at this moment. And Daniel 12 is like the culmination of this revelation. And God says that in the last time... ...that Michael the archangel, this great prince... ...will protect your people, will arise... And there will be a time, now here it is, there will be a time of distress... ...such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life... ...and others to shame and everlasting contempt. What Daniel is predicting is that there's going to come a time... ...that's in the future from Daniel's perspective... It's still in the future from the book of Revelation's perspective where there's going to be this gigantic time of testing of the people on planet Earth. And the issue is going to be, who are you going to trust in? Who are you going to believe in? Who are you going to build your life on? Now you can say, well Dave, man, this idea of a worldwide testing, just a worldwide catastrophe and and everything coming apart at the seams, man, that could never happen. Well, I believe if you look at human history, God has been giving us previews. ...of this ultimate time of testing... ...down through time. Daniel faced one preview... ...when Nebuchadnezzar went and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. That was one preview. When the Romans in 70 AD... ...in 70 AD... ...the Romans attacked the city of Jerusalem... They surrounded it, they put it under siege, and then they took their siege work, and they literally took every stone from the, from the Herodian temple and just tore it apart one stone at a time. They set it on fire so that all the gold melted away, and they totally turned it into an ash heap. And the Jews were scattered. And they'd been scattered throughout the world until 1948. When they started, when they were declared a nation, it was the first time in 1900 years that they had been a nation and had a place again. That's an incredible story. Just think of what you all of that are a little bit older have faced right in this generation, right in this time. World War II. You want to wonder if, if there could ever be a time when there could be a massive raising up of anti-God, anti-Bible forces that would seek to just strangle human existence? hitler started out deceptively just like antichrist will start out he was a great speaker he was very motivated he could communicate tremendous hope how do you think he got german youth to march for him by the by the thousands by the millions how did he do that he was brilliant he was a brilliant politician he was a he was a cunning like a fox and much of the western world was captivated by him It's easy for us to look back at at the war, and you look at Saving Private Ryan, and Life is Beautiful, and you see the heinous evil, because it's been exposed, the the nakedness was exposed. But in in the pre-World War II time, during the 30s, there were even people in American universities, and Hollywood itself was vaunting how Nazism would be the next thing. If you were living in Germany during the 30s, you would be tempted. Evangelical churches like ours said, this is the answer. It's going to make Germans proud again. It's going to make Germans on top again. And Hitler mixed that German pride, that German engineering sense, that German discipline. And he took the agony of World War I and he mixed it all in together in an incredibly cunning plot. And he got Germany just to totally fall before him and worship him. So you don't have to look very far. You don't have to look back very far. What about Lenin? Some of you say, well, I don't remember that. But what about communism? Communism. Communism is the same kind of a philosophy, the same kind of an attitude, the same kind of a spirit. The Bible's not true. God is non-existent. Who cares about this carpenter from Galilee? Life is just about economics. We can produce our own heaven on earth just by our own human strength. And so the ideas of Karl Marx begin to gather strength in Europe and then totally subjugate Russia and the Eastern Bloc for 70 years. It was the spirit of Antichrist. So when some of your unbelieving friends say, man, you know, you believe in that Bible stuff, that's a bunch of fairy tales. I got news for you, friend, they never read their Bible. No one that reads their Bible will ever say that it's boring. And someone that reads their Bible will never say that it's just a bunch of fairy tales because I got news for you, this is the most realistic, powerful book you'll ever read. It's got everything in it. It has violence in it. It has sex in it. It has Good, beautiful princes and princesses, and it has ugly villains. It has life the way it really is, and every piece of literature that's ever been written that endures is built on this book. You can't even understand Shakespeare unless you read this book. Because he constantly alludes to this book. Why? Because a great artist is a great artist because they're in touch with what's really under the surface, what's really going on. And what I want you to know is that you're living, according to the book of Revelation, you're not living in a time where there's going to be peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and everybody will be happy, and Disneyland will rule supreme. Disneyland's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until all the world is one gigantic Disneyland. I got news for you. Disneyland, from man's perspective, when man's utopian dreams become true, it's bathed in blood. It's bathed in deception. It's bathed in the weak people being crushed. And what the book of Revelation declares is that if there's a mighty God in heaven, that's going to do something about it. And Michael the archangel is going to rise up. And all that anti-Semiticism that's not through yet. Anti-Semiticism is not dead on planet Earth. In fact, it's going to raise its ugly head during the time that Daniel's talking about it in the worst way imaginable. In the worst kind of outpouring of that hatred against the physical sons of Abraham. But then God promises, then I'm going to fight for them. Now, what is Daniel promising the church? That's this great hour of testing that's coming upon the whole earth. But look what Daniel promises you guys. Look what he promises the church of Philadelphia. Look what he says here. He says, you will be kept. Look at verse 10. Since you have kept my command and to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole earth. Jesus says, I am going to keep those true, genuine, authentic believers that are in the Philadelphian church that have trusted in me, that have come to me for salvation, I'm going to keep them from this hour of trial. Now, what does that mean? Well, the big debate over these verses is, does it mean that we're going to be kept through the trial, or are we going to be kept out of the trial? Now, let's talk about that. First of all, let's just break it down and talk about what the words mean. It says, You will be kept. What does it mean to keep in this verse? Well, John the Apostle and the New Testament writers use that word keep in basically two big areas. One of the words, one of the meanings of the words, is to obey. In fact, it's used right in this verse to mean obey. It says here, Because you have kept the gospel of my endurance. Because And I could translate that totally accurately by saying, because you have obeyed the gospel of my endurance. For me, as an, as an Old Testament lover of the Old Testament, it's very similar to the word where the Lord told, it's a, the change of the language, but it's the same kind of an idea. In the very beginning of time, God told Adam, I put you in the garden to serve the garden and to keep it, to guard it. Now, the Hebrew word that's used for to keep or to guard the garden, which later on in the Old Testament becomes a way of expressing faithfulness to the covenant relationship with God, is very similar to the way that the word used because you have kept the gospel of my endurance. It means to obey it. What does it mean? Let me literally say you know, what it means. These believers living in Philadelphia, there was a powerful synagogue in Philadelphia. The synagogue was accepted. It was ...already entrenched in the culture of Philadelphia. As these believers argued about Jesus being the Messiah... ...in that synagogue, people got upset about it. Some of them responded, like when Paul preached in a synagogue... ...but some of them got really angry and they said... ...no, we don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We think he was a blasphemer. We think that he's demonic. We think that you are a heretic for believing in Jesus. And they threw him out of the synagogue... That's historically what was happening in the first century. Believers like you from a Jewish background would be excommunicated from your synagogue. Now that's a tough thing. Some of you have experienced some of that. Some of you, as, as you started to read the Bible, and all of you have many different stories. But if I ask some of you to share, some of you have faced that kind of suffering. Because when you received Christ as your Savior and you came out of your old religious background and you started to declare that Jesus alone can save you and that by believing in him you could have eternal life, some of you have faced intense struggles with your families over that. Some of you have experienced intense struggles with your friends over that. You can really feel what these Philadelphians were feeling when in the synagogue they were thrown out. That's one of the hardest things to ever happen to you. And what's the Lord telling them to do? He's telling them, listen, you have got to endure. You see, when Jesus faced opposition, and when Jesus lived his life, Jesus faced opposition. One of the things that I find in my own life is, I don't like conflict. I want to do everything I can to make there be peace. Now, I don't know, that's just a really strong part of my personality. You know, like I've got some friends, man, they love conflict. You have some friends like that? a good fight. Amen, man. Let's go for it. Man, that's what makes life exciting. My friend, man, we had a great argument today. Man, it was awesome. We were almost at blows with one another. It was really great. I just loved the argument. It was awesome. They live for that, not me. If I'm in a conversation and it starts going bad, there's a part of me that wants to raise up. I got a lot of my dad in it, but I saw my dad do that as a little kid, and I just that conflict, that feeling of conflict. Some of you can identify with that. Some of you even leave the room when there's conflict, right? You just can't take it. Some of you have parents that as soon as you try to level with them, they leave the room. You know, you never get anywhere because they just will not handle conflict. Well, Jesus is saying that if you're going to be a born-again believer, one of the things that you need to do is to handle conflict. I want to tell you just straight up. You really go all the way with Jesus. You grab a hold of Jesus or really let him grab a hold of you. And you endure in that commitment to Jesus. I got news for you. This is a relationship thing. It's not like joining, you know, some club. This is a relationship thing. It means that you meet Jesus at a particular point in your life. And he explains to you that he's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He's been predicted that he would come into the world from the beginning of time. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He is the only one that can deal with the man's greatest problem, which is the problem of your guilt and mine, which is going to put us into a grave, and we're going to be dead, dead, dead. And Jesus says, I'm the only one in all of reality with my Father and my Spirit. We're the only one. The triune God is the only one that can handle your problem. You got that? And what salvation is, is saying, Jesus, come into my life. I want you to come and live inside of me. You come in and I depend upon the fact that you died for me. Revelation 1 says that we worship before the lamb that was slain. He was a slain lamb who loosed us from our sins. Revelation 4 and 5 focuses on the slaughtered lamb. You need to understand that. You need to hang on to that. That's the bedrock of my life. That's what our families are built on. That's what our church family is built on. And what Jesus is saying is you've got to endure in that commitment. Now, the Holy Spirit inside of you will enable you to endure. But the New Testament is very strong. This is not just like I get a club ticket and now I can just live any way I want to and then I just live happily ever after. This is a relationship. Just like your marriage was a relationship, you made a covenant and you entered into covenant with your wife and with your husband. And there's intimacy that flows from that. That's the model of what Jesus wants to have with you. And if you've never entered into this precious holy covenant with Jesus, I pray you will do so soon. Jesus comforted the Philadelphian believers as they faced persecution from the Roman emperor Domitian. And Jesus wants to comfort you as you face the uncertainties of this modern world. Open your life to Him. Thank Him for paying the price for your sin. Trust the reality that He left the tomb forever, and therefore He has the power to give you eternal life. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus said He's knocking at our heart's door. If you will let Him inside, He will come in and take up residence in your life today. As we close this time together today, Why not invite Jesus into your life?